Hi friends, and welcome to another episode of the Oakham Church Podcast. We're in this series where we're looking at the importance of being grounded, of looking at why it's so significant for us in our lives here and now to have deep roots, to have a a firm and strong and certain foundation. So far in this series, we've looked at what it means to be grounded in Christ and grounded in community and grounded in place. And now on this fourth episode, we're looking at the importance of being grounded in contentment. Um, In a world where we're told that we should have this and we should buy that and we should go there and we should wear those and we should look like them and we should go to those holidays and eat in those restaurants and everything about social media is propping up this idea that if we could just get this, if we could just attain that, if we could just be more like them, then we'd be happy, then we'd be fulfilled, then we'd have finally arrived, then we'd have made it, then we can finally be content. It's not just social media, but any kind of stream of advertising sells us this over and over again. If you buy this product, if you buy into this idea, if you live in this certain way, if you devote yourself to whatever this thing is, then you will be happy. You'll be fitter, you'll be stronger, you'll be faster, you'll be happier, you'll be more intelligent, you'll be more... um, whatever, just more of everything. You'll be, um, yeah, more popular to people. All the things that that we think we want, we're told that if we just bought that toothpaste or wore those clothes or drank that energy drink or went on that holiday or drove that make of car, then we'll have done it. Then all our dreams will come true. Then we will truly be content. But of course, if you've been on live on this planet for any length of time, you know that's just a lie. Because what happens? The next thing comes along. So you try and you strive and you earn and you save and you grasp towards whatever that thing is that you think is going to make you happy. And when you finally get it, what happens? It was just empty. It was just like grabbing smoke. And maybe you were happy for a while, but then it wasn't new and shiny anymore. Then your attention is drawn to something else and you think, oh, this was good for a while, but now that's the thing. Now the next model's out. Now the newest, latest trends are out. And that's what I need to be fighting for. And life is just this constant striving and grasping and desperately trying to get over there or be more like that. And we never actually get what we think we're going to get. We never actually get what those things are promising us. It's empty. We never meet and reach that true contentment. With that being said, a couple of readings. First one is from Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 3. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. 
This is Paul um, writing a letter to the churches that are meeting in a place called Philippi. And straight away we hear this word joy, which should stand out because this letter is a letter all about joy. But hopefully we'll see that this joy is something deeper than just being happy. That this joy is actually a lot more like that true contentment that we're looking into being more grounded into. You see, Paul writes this letter to the churches in Philippi whilst he's in prison. And yet it mentions joy and contentment and being blessed and having abundance of riches. And yet he's in prison. And he writes it to this group of people that find themselves in this city called Philippi, which we'll hear a little bit more about in a second. But I just wanted to bring your attention to the idea of distraction and how distraction can kill our contentment. That basically what this world wants to do, what the devil wants to do, if you want to use that language, what the enemy wants us to do is to be distracted, to be distracted to death. You see, if we distracted enough, if we have our attention pulled in that direction and that direction and from that new thing to that new thing, from that shiny thing to that shiny thing and on and on and on, always glancing around, always moving about, always comparing ourselves with others and competing with others to try and be the best, we never stand still long enough. We never stay still in one place for long enough to be able to ground ourselves and so we find ourselves being swashed around and and wafted about from one place to the next and before we know it our lives are over and we have nothing to show for it distraction can kill that real contentment just like how um, c.s lewis is famously said to say that comparison robs us of our joy If we spend all our time comparing ourselves and our lives and what we have and what we can do with others around us, we're always going to find someone who's better, who's bigger, who's stronger, who's more popular, who's more successful, who produces more, who seems to have more hours in the day than we do. And no matter how hard we try, we can never meet up. And that, C.S. Lewis tells us, robs us of joy just like how distraction can kill our contentment. And this is all linked to the fact that we are living our lives in this state of hurry, that we're rushing around from one thing to the next, as I said, and never able to put down our roots. There's a story that uh, goes like this. In the height of um, the the colonies in the height of the British colonialism an English traveller lands in Africa and he's intent on this rapid journey into the jungle he wants to take land he wants to discover things he wants to be the first white man to to conquer this area and to plant his flag and so he wants to get straight into the jungle and so he charters some local porters to carry his supplies and After this exhausting day of travelling, the heat, as you can imagine, in Africa, travelling on foot, and then after a fitful night's sleep, he gets up to continue his journey. But the porters, the people in charge of carrying all the stuff that I'm sure he thought was very, very important and that he needed when he was packing for this journey, 
though it's probably all useless, the porters refuse. They're exasperated and fed up and frustrated. He begins to just berate them and, and, and try and maybe even bribe them and plead with them, but nothing works. Then they refuse to move. They will not move an inch. And so he asks why. Through a translator, he wants to know why these porters, why these these guys who he's hired and paid good money to carry his stuff, why, why they refuse to move. And this is their answer in this story. They tell him that they're waiting for their souls to catch up with their bodies. Wow. Who here listening to this podcast feels like that sometimes? That we're being rushed from one thing to the next, that life just seems to be snowballing out of control, that there seems to be no grounding, no stability to anything, and by the through the winds of change and everything's blowing us one way and the next, and we can barely keep upright. We don't know which way is up and down. You might feel like you're drowning or barely treading water, and it feels just like that. We need just a second just to catch our breath and just to wait for our souls to catch up with our bodies. A a woman called Letty Kownman, when she was telling this story, she wrote this. This whirling, rushing life which so many of us live does for us what that first march did for those poor jungle tribesmen. The difference was that they knew what they needed to restore life's balance. And yet too often, we do not. And it's true, isn't it? All throughout time, we can see, we can hear about people talking about how this this being rushed and being distracted and comparing and competing does nothing for our inner life. It does nothing for our ability to ground ourselves. Psychologists and mental health professionals are now talking about this as an epidemic. That this this hurry sickness is just that. It's a sickness. They've even labelled it as a disease. Here's a definition that I found on the internet. A behaviour pattern characterised by continual rushing and anxiousness. Here's another definition. A malaise in which a person feels chronically short of time and so tends to perform every task faster to get flustered when encountering any kind of delay. Maya Friedman is a cardiologist and an expert in this and talking about kind of type A personalities and and this idea of people rushing from one thing to the next and being a, a doer and an achiever. They, they said this, it's a continuous struggle, an unremitting attempt to accomplish or achieve more and more things or to participate in more and more events in less and less time. It was actually Friedman who co- originally coined that phrase, hurry sickness, noting, noticing that the, the people who were stressed and the people who were living these kinds of lifestyles of rushing around from one thing to the next, desperately trying to get more and more things ticked off their to-do list, were the most at risk of cardiovascular illnesses and situations. They were the people who, who were having those problems with their breathing and their hearts. They were the people who had this kind of sense of time urgency. And that, that was noticed in the 1950s. 
just think how much more that that pressure is now as we find ourselves in 2022, how much more the emphasis is on doing more and being more and going more and achieving more and being faster and quicker and more proficient and on and on and on. So how do we know if we're struggling with this hurry sickness? How do we, how can we stop and recognise the times in our lives when we need to stop and ground ourselves so that us, our souls can catch up with our bodies. We've got a few little things that maybe you might be able to recognise in your own lives and in the lives of the people around you. Here are a few. Firstly, irritability. Maybe you get mad or frustrated or just annoyed way too easily more than usual and little the little stuff seems to just spark these huge reactions in you for no reason it's not until you look back afterwards and you think why on earth did I blow up like that and it's usually at the people closest to you it's usually directed towards the people who you claim to love the most so it's your spouse it's your children it's the people you live with it's your work colleagues here's another one hypersensitivity where all it takes is that just a, a little offhand comment to hurt your feelings or that that comment said on social media or that email or that text message and straight away it ruins your entire day just a tiny little mention of something and it throws you completely off balance maybe you did something and you got 99 positive comments about that thing and one negative and yet, what's the one thing that you hold on to? What's the one thing you chew like a wasp in your mouth? The one negative thing. Here's another thing. Restlessness. When you do actually take time to stop and rest and abide and dwell and maybe try to start to sink your roots down, you find that you can't relax. Maybe you go a couple of days off work or you go away on holiday and you find yourself with that kind of restless legs wanting to go and do and be more. You've put yourself in this place where you are able to stop and yet all the time you're wanting to go, all the while the wheels are still spinning. And maybe even from the outside you look like you're sitting still, you look like you're calm, but inside all the stuff's going in your brain, you're thinking about a million and one other things all at once. How about emotional numbness? Where you just feel numb. You just don't have the capacity or the ability to feel someone else's pain. You can't feel empathy or sympathy for others. You're just dead to it. How about a lack of care for your body? Where you don't have time for just the basic stuff. Eight hours of sleep a night. Exercise. Healthy home-cooked food. Kind of minimal stimulants at the, the times when... So you're not on your phone just before you're trying to go to sleep. You're not intaking more and more coffee so that you can keep yourself awake. And keep yourself jacked up so that you can get more more done. How about this? Escapist behaviours. See, when we're too tired to do what's actually kind of life-giving to our souls, we turn to distractions, whether that's overeating, over-drinking, 
whether it's binge watching Netflix or some other TV show, browsing social media, whatever it might be, just to just to escape, just to get away, just to just to block out all of the noise and all of that other stuff. You try and distract yourself in another way. Or how about this one? Isolation. Where you feel disconnected from God, disconnected from other people, disconnected from your own soul, like those porters in that story at the beginning, where you've realised and recognised that your soul is struggling to keep up with where you're going and what you're doing. So maybe some of those resonate with you, maybe not. Maybe you've got all of those things going on. Maybe you've got 10 others that I haven't mentioned there. That's not an exhaustive list, but the truth is the truth. And that distraction and that hurry kills our contentment and our joy. Now, as I said, Paul was writing this letter to the Philippians, to this place called Philippi. And Philippi, even though it wasn't in Rome, it was treated like part of the empire. It was a, a, an area that was settled by lots and lots of ex-Roman uh, empire soldiers. So there was a, a heavy military influence there, but there was also all sorts of other things as well. Philippi was this wonderful place for trade. The routes passing through would go from one area of the known world to the next. And so anything and everything passed through Philippi, different foods and spices and music and fashion and education and philosophy and religion and culture and sport and on and on and on. And it was kind of pushed up as this kind of flagship city. It was the empire's way of saying, look, if you allow us to conquer you, if you agree to be part of this Roman Empire, you can look just like Philippi. Look how amazing this is. Look at the buildings. Look at the architecture. Look at the, the food. Look at their way of life. It was everything about Philippi was modelled on it looking like Rome. It even had that nickname, Little Rome. But one thing was staring them in the face wasn't Rome. Everything about that place was telling them to look somewhere else. You're from Philippi, this is where you belong, this is where you live, and yet you need to be more like them, more like that, over there, somewhere else. If you want to fit in, if you want to belong here in Philippi, be more like Rome. These kinds of messages and these kinds of words sound very similar for us today, don't they? Where, as I said before, through advertising, through social media, through other people's kind of influence on our lives, we're being told over and over again, if you want to fit in, if you want to belong, if you want to be seen as cool or successful or productive or that you've achieved what you need to achieve, if you want to appear to be content then you need to be less like you and more like that. This is the same message that the Philippians were hearing back then in the first century. It's the same message that we are hearing now in the 21st century. And into that and to those people, Paul finishes his letter like this. Philippians 4 verse 10. 
I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at least you renewed your concern for me. And at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Church Paul writing here to this church in Philippi saying, don't listen to those outside voices. Don't listen to all those other storylines and all those other scripts that the empire is trying to push on you to say, be more like us. Don't listen to those outside voices and maybe even the inside voices saying, if I could just be more that, or if I could just do more of that, then I will be fulfilled. Then I'll be content. Paul is saying no. No to them and saying no to us. Don't fall for those lies. Don't fall for those empty promises. Friends, Paul here is speaking these words to us in our situation and in our culture and in our day to day. Don't pay attention to those voices. Listen to God. Allow time to be grounded in Christ and grounded in community and grounded in place so that you can be grounded in contentment. So that you can be content in every, what is it, every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. That's how we're grounded in contentment. That we don't listen to those outside voices. That we stop and we plant ourselves firmly in God. That we dwell within him and give our souls time to catch up with our bodies. Grace and peace. Hi friends, and welcome to another episode of the Oakham Church Podcast. This is our last episode in this series where we're looking about the importance of being grounded. And all throughout this series, we've been basing a lot of the structure and a lot of the ideas and a lot of the kind of framework for these podcasts, as well as the Sunday service messages, on and around uh, a book by a guy called Nathan Oates, called stability in this world that we find ourselves today where everything feels unstable where everything feels uncertain where everything feels like we don't know which way's up and which way's down we wake we go to bed with a situation one way and wake up with a situation like another we've had changes in um uh, parliament and changes in our political um structures uh, recently we've had the death of the queen and now the bringing on of the the new king and what will that mean and what will that look look like there's all this uncertainty in the kind of um political and traditional views of looking at things we've also got this upheaval of what's going to happen with all the the rising costs of living with um wages being low and unemployment being high and people struggling still after covid and now on top of that we've got all these 
increased prices in um, the gas and electric bills over the winter and what that's going to mean, whether people are going to have to choose whether they heat or eat this winter and all of the kind of worry and stress and confusion and instability that that kind of gives to us as well. And there's so many options for us today, so many places that we can try and plant ourselves, so many places that we can try and put our roots down and and get our foundations from and, and ground ourselves in whatever that thing might be. Maybe for you, it's your job. Uh, maybe it's your identity, your position, your status at work, or maybe within family, you, you place your identity and, and you place that, that groundedness within your position and your status in your own family. And that you believe that is what makes you who you are. Maybe you put it in the government or your bank statements or your savings accounts or the stuff that you can own or your house or whatever it is. Um, that we might try and kind of ground ourselves in. All of these things are not the thing. Because as we saw back in episode one of this series, first and foremost, we must be grounded in Jesus. We must put our foundation on that rock of Christ so that when the storms come, when the winds beat against our houses of our lives, we can stand firm because we're planted and rooted and grafted firmly and deeply on Christ, our rock and our anchor, that we are grounded in Jesus. All through this series, we've looked at different ways and different things that we need to ground ourselves in, whether it's through community or whether it's through um a people and a place, whether it's through contentment. And today is the final one. We're going to look at what it means to be grounded in church. As I said, these are all based off this Nathan Oates book. And in this book, he takes particular interest in the life and the writing and the teaching of St. Benedict. And one of the things that St. Benedict does is he's writing his his laws or his rules and and putting this structure together as he's thinking about the posture and and what it is to be grounded and why it's so important for for them back then but also for us now one of the things that he does is he takes these ideas of these monks or these groups of monks these factions from within his tradition and takes them and uses them as examples of how to talk about people as a whole to talk about people in, in a wider way And one of the groups that he talks about, the the final group, which he has the most kind of criticism and the most scathing comments for in his kind of the rule of St. Benedict, is this group that he calls gyrovigs. Now, gyrovigs literally mean that they would never stay in one place. They'd always be busy, always be moving around, but never actually doing anything. Um, Maybe you can relate. Uh, Maybe you've had times in your lives when you've felt rushed around and always busy, always doing stuff. And then you look back and you think, well, what is it that I've actually achieved? What is it that I've actually got done? Maybe you know people, maybe you work with people who are really good at this, looking busy without actually getting anything done. That's the gyrovics. And um, Benedict goes on to explain that what they would do as as monks, they would travel around from place to place and they'd come and and visit different communities of monks. And as as a rule, as an expectation, as monks, what they would have to do when visitors would come is they would be 
the best hosts they could be. They would give the, the people that were coming to see them the best of the best. They would treat them as if it was Jesus himself that was visiting them. That was the view. And so these gyrovigs would come to a monastic community and they would be given the best food, which meant that the monks that lived there weren't getting that food. They'd be given clothing, they'd be given shelter, they'd be given um, the beds from the other monk, from the monks, and so that then they would have to sleep on the floor. They'd get the best of the best as a way of them being good hosts and as a way of them showing their generosity and their love to these visitors. And so these gyrovigs, of course, would gratefully take the best food and the best drink and the comfiest places to sleep and all the nice cushy stuff. Once they'd been there a while, they'd be approached by the the people who actually lived within that community and asked, if you're planning to stay, then we need something from you as well. You can't just keep taking you've got to give back into this community as well. So whether that's joining in work or whether that's starting to live the way that we live and going without these these luxuries and the best of the best stuff. And the second that these gyrovigs were approached in this way, they'd leave and they'd move on to the next community where, of course, they'd get the best of the best from them until they were approached and asked to commit and asked to put down roots in that community and then they'd leave again. And reading about this, it got me thinking that this was actually probably the first example of church hopping. The first example of where people would go to a church or go to a religious community simply as a consumer. What can you give to me? And so they would turn up, they would take, they would take, they would take. And then when someone had offended them or someone had asked them for something or something was expected of them, they'd just shake the dust off, move on to the next place where they could be consumers again. And Benedict here saves his most harsh criticism for these groups of people because they are ignoring this fifth and final element to what it means to be grounded. And that is to be grounded in church. So yes, we are grounded in Christ and we're grounded in a community and we're grounded in a place and a people and we're grounded in contentment. But we also need to be grounded in a church. The church is God's idea. The church, as as we're reminded um, in the Gospels, Jesus says, I will build my church. The church is the bride of Christ. The church is the body of Christ. The church is Jesus's idea. And so for us to say, oh no, I'll go here for a little bit. And then when something happens that I don't like, then I'll just move on to the next thing. And to kind of treat it really blasé is to insult Jesus. It's to say that I don't think this bride is worth investing my time in. It's to say I don't think this body is worth grafting myself onto. And it's got even worse in recent years as well because now people can consider themselves part of a church without ever actually attending. Whether it's through online um, services where they can feel almost like they're connected but without 
having to put any effort in themselves or you can just receive all of your stuff so I'm spiritual but not religious and I'm a Christian but I don't go to a physical church I get my church from YouTube and I get podcasts and I get teachings online and I listen to my worship on demand and I get the best of the best of the best of the best and I'm able to take 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 just like the gyro vigs without actually giving of myself you see there's no planting is there there's no there's no ground in there so with all that said as a kind of intro I want to just spend the last bit of the podcast with now is just reading from what I think is one of the the best possible kind of examples of this that we have in the New Testament and it's again Paul and it's Paul's letter uh, this time to the Ephesians Uh, where he has a lot to say so I'm just gonna kind of pick two sections here I'm gonna read from Ephesians chapter 2 and then Ephesians chapter 5 so if you want to follow along feel free otherwise just allow this time to have these words spoken over you and spoken into you wherever you are and whatever you're doing there whether it's you've got your headphones in and you're getting chores done or you're listening to me in the car or you're having a workout at the gym or you, you're in the garden or what, lying in bed, whatever it is, allow this now to just be words spoken over you. So this is Ephesians chapter 2. It wasn't so long ago that you were mired in that old stagnant life of sin. You let the world, which doesn't know the first thing about living, tell you how to live. You filled your lungs with polluted unbelief and then exhaled disobedience. We all did it. All of us doing what we felt like doing when we felt like doing it. All of us in the same boat. It's a wonder God didn't lose his temper and do away with a whole lot of us. Instead, immense in mercy, And with an incredible love, he embraced us. He took our sin-dead lives and made us alive in Christ. He did all this on his own, with no help from us. Then he picked us up and set us down in the highest heaven in company with Jesus, our Messiah. Now God has us where he wants us, with all the time in this world, and then the next to shower grace and kindness upon us in Christ Jesus. Saving is all his idea and all his work. All we do is trust him enough to let him do it. It's God's gift from start to finish. We don't play a major role. If we did, we'd probably go around bragging that we'd done the whole thing. No, we neither make nor save ourselves. God does both the making and the saving. He creates each of us by Christ Jesus to join him in the work he does, the good work he has gotten ready for us to do, work we had better be doing. But don't take any of this for granted. It was only yesterday that you outsiders to God's ways had no idea of any of this, didn't know the first thing about the way God works, hadn't the faintest idea of Christ. You knew nothing of that rich history of God's covenants and promises in Israel, hadn't a clue about what God was doing in the world at large. Now, because of Christ, dying that death, shedding that blood, You who were once out of it altogether 
are in on everything. The Messiah has made things up between us so that we are now together on this, both non-Jewish outsiders and Jewish insiders. He tore down the wall we used to keep each other at a distance. He repealed the law code that had become so clogged with fine print and footnotes that it hindered more than it helped. Then he started over. Instead of continuing with two groups of people separated by centuries of animosity and suspicion, he created a new kind of human being. A fresh start for everybody. Christ brought us together through his death on the cross. The cross got us to embrace, and that was the end of hostility. Christ came and preached peace to you outsiders, and peace to us insiders. He treated us as equals, and so made us equals. Through him, we both share the same spirit and have equal access to the Father. That's plain enough, isn't it? You're no longer wandering exiles. This kingdom of faith is now your home country. You're no longer strangers or outsiders. You belong here, with as much right to the name Christian as anyone. God is building a home. He's using us all, irrespective of how we got here. In what he's building. He used his apostles and the prophets for the foundation. Now he's using you, fitting you in brick by brick, stone by stone, with Christ Jesus as the cornerstone that holds all parts together. We see it taking shape day after day, a holy temple built by God, all of us built into it, a temple in which God is quite at home. And then over into chapter five. Watch what God does, and then you do it. Like children who learn proper behavior from their parents. Mostly what God does is love you. Keep company with him and learn a life of love. Observe how Christ loved us. His love was not cautious, but extravagant. He didn't love in order to get something from us, but to give everything of himself to us. Love like that. Don't allow love to turn into lust, setting off a downhill slide into sexual promiscuity and filthy practices or bullying greed. Though some tongues just love the taste of gossip, Christians have better uses for language than that. Don't talk dirty or silly. That kind of talk doesn't fit our lifestyle. Thanksgiving is our dialect. You can be sure that using people or religion or things just for what you can get out of them, the usual variations on idolatry, will get you nowhere. And certainly nowhere near the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of God. Don't let yourselves get taken in by the religious smooth talk. God gets furious with people who are full of religious sales talk, but want nothing to do with him. Don't even hang around with people like that. You groped your way through that murk once, but no longer. 
you're out in the open now. The bright light of Christ makes your way plain. So no more stumbling around. Get on with it. The good, the right, the true. These are the actions appropriate for daylight hours. Figure out what will please Christ and then do it. Don't waste your time on useless work, mere busy work, the barren pursuits of darkness. Expose these things for the sham they are. It's a scandal when people waste their lives on things that they must do in the darkness where no one will see. Rip the cover off those frauds and see how attractive they look in the light of Christ. Wake up from your sleep. Climb out of your coffin. Christ will show you the light. So watch your step. Use your head. Make the most of every chance you get. These are desperate times. Don't live carelessly, unthinkingly. Make sure you understand what the master wants. Don't drink too much wine. That cheapens your life. Drink the spirit of God. Huge draughts of him. Sing hymns instead of drinking songs. Sing songs from your heart to Christ. Sing praises over everything. Any excuse for a song to God the Father in the name of our master, Jesus Christ. Now, whether you read that or listen to it, I mean, you can do all the way through the book of Ephesians, but there's this beautiful kind of flow to it. It's like poetry. It's like listening to a song. It's like it's like oozing as it goes and you can catch the highs and lows. And there's these wonderful statements about Jesus loving the church and giving his life for the church. And then not just that, but making the church clean and whole and presentable. Despite the church's faults and failures and flaws, Jesus here, we're told by Paul, is committed to seeing the bride radiant. And we're reminded over and over again in this letter to the Ephesians that it's Jesus is the one who holds all this together. Jesus is the one who holds all things together. Jesus is the one who takes the two and makes them one. So friends, right now, as you're thinking about your own groundedness, as you're thinking about your own lives, as you're thinking about what you lay your foundations on, may you come to realise with all the faults and all the failures and all the ugliness that comes along with this human side of the church, Lord, may you see right now the beauty of the church, the beauty of the bride of Christ the beauty of the body of Christ. And may you be grounded in that Christ, the one who holds it all together. Grace and peace.